Hello, my name is Wendy Myers. Welcome to the Live to 110 podcast. You can learn more about me at my website, livetoo110.com, and check out my healing and detox program, mineralpower.com. Today, I am going to be revealing another free bonus talk from the Medicinal Supplement Summit. This is a summit that I hosted that had 36 of the world's top experts on health and nutrition. Talk about how to take supplements properly. What supplements do you need for various health conditions? What supplement ingredients to avoid? The best brands that the experts use on themselves and their clients and food-based versus synthetic supplements. There's so many questions answered to help you save time and money and improve your health to get the health that you deserve. So today is one of the free bonus talks. There's 15 bonus talks in addition to the 36 speakers in the main lineup. And I wanted to, you know, just uh, have this show today on the podcast because it was so good. Michael McAvoy talked about the best supplements to repair blood sugar metabolism, to repair diabetes. And so important because one in two people have diabetes or pre-diabetes or will get it in the future. Such a huge problem. And there's so many things that you can do besides medication to keep your blood sugar under control. This is such a brilliant podcast because I know so many of you listening, if you don't have diabetes, you know someone who does. You have a loved one, a family member that you see suffering. And I saw my own father suffer from diabetes for 10 years and struggling with his diet and taking metformin and then having to graduate to the injections. And then he eventually developed cancer as a result of having diabetes and chronic uncontrolled high blood sugar. And then he had surgery for his cancer and he couldn't heal from it because his blood sugar was too high. And then he ended up dying about six weeks later because the incisions and the stitches just, it just couldn't heal. So, so many people are devastated from uh, their family and loved ones having diabetes and that's what makes this, this talk so important. But first, I need to do the disclaimer. Please keep in mind that this podcast, the summit talk, is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease or health condition and is not a substitute for professional medical advice. Please consult your healthcare practitioner before engaging in anything that we talk about today on the show. Sit back, relax, and enjoy this summit talk from Michael McAvoy on the best supplements to control diabetes and high blood sugar. Hello everyone, Wendy Myers here from livetoo110.com. Anyone determined to be healthy takes supplements and that's why I brought together all the health experts for the Medicinal Supplement Summit because I'm committed to helping you experience the health that you deserve through taking the right supplements for you. Today, my friend and special guest is Michael McAvoy. He is the founder of MetabolicHealing.com, and he's the creator of four clinical training programs, including the Blood Sugar and Insulin Resistance Mastery Course. In addition to being the author of more than 300 web articles, Michael has created the Metabolic Healing Functional Blood Chemistry Analyzer and Neutrogenomic Reports, which are used regularly by clinicians and his clientele. Michael is a clinician, researcher, and educator and he lives in Santa Cruz, California. Michael, thank you so much for joining us on the summit. Thanks, Wendy. It's great to be here. 
Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into health? Well, I've been doing what I've been doing um, health-wise for oh, oh, about 10 years or so. And the journey began with me as a personal experience with health, as it does so, for so many people. And, you know, I basically got to a point where I was very sick and I was extremely underweight and I was not healthy. And I was at a place in my early 20s where I was ready to really transform and to experience something better. And uh, I had a distrust for Western medicine. And even though I didn't really know much about it, I about alternative healing and, and natural medicine, I did seek out help from... Uh, friends and uh, of mine who had gone through similar experiences and they basically led me down the path of really becoming more responsible for my health and that really became a, a big shift and turning point and um, you know I previously was unaware that a person could literally um, be their own health care provider and serve as their own in many ways doctor or uh, caring for their own body in just a very simple way that to me that concept before didn't even exist um, and I realize now that it doesn't with so many people in the world people are often dependent on others for their own health and um, I think that that can lead to problems but um, long story short I basically kind of made a determination and uh, a certain vow that I would do everything I possibly could to get as healthy as I possibly could. And I quickly regained my weight. At the time when I had gotten sick, I was down to 120 pounds. I'm five foot seven. And, uh, you know, right now I weigh about 165. And I had, you know, very serious um, bowel problems and digestive distress that had led me down that path. And um, it's been you know, within a matter of months, uh, I regained my health, and um, within a few years, I realized that that was something I wanted to do professionally, and I've been doing it now for about 10 years or so. Yeah, and I love it. I love seeing people taking responsibility for their own health. A lot of the listeners of the summit hungry for information to take control of their health, and I know a lot of my clientele, it's amazing how much they know and have educated themselves, and it's what you have to do. No one's going to care about your body and your health as much as you. That's right. It's Period. really, that's what it comes down to is you, you've got to become your own authority. And, uh, you know, that that shouldn't take away from the fact that there's many great practitioners, but they only can point in a certain direction. Ultimately, at the end of the day, you're the one that has to be responsible for everything that you do health-wise. Yeah. yeah, so let's talk about blood sugar. In layman's terms, can you explain how blood sugar metabolism works and why it's so critical to get under control? Yeah, so I'll start out and preface this by saying that, you know, in the United States, statistics show that approximately one out of three people is already diabetic and about 46 percent of the US population is either diabetic or pre-diabetic that's nearly one out of two people so we're dealing with a raging epidemic that certainly didn't exist uh, even a hundred years ago and the figures are going to continue to rise if there's something that isn't done about it but type 2 diabetes and insulin resistance is an entirely manageable disease it's something that can be entirely managed and even completely reversed in many cases um, just with some basic attention to some dietary nutritional principles. But what I want to talk about now just to answer your question is first of all we all of the parts of our body, all of our cells burn and use glucose as a source of fuel and energy. 
And diabetes is not really, and insulin resistance is not really a disease of blood sugar, even though blood sugar levels elevate, and that certainly causes you know, downstream problems when that happens. But it really is a condition of inflammation and insulin resistance. And when, when basically when, when the cells don't utilize glucose correctly, if they can't take them up, can't burn the glucose correctly because of a signaling problem or inflammatory processes that underlie that, this leads to all kinds of different complications and various risk factors such as cardiovascular disease and um, neuropathy-related symptoms and very high levels of inflammatory processes begin to rise. So while blood sugar, getting that under control is central to health, um, it is not in and of itself a disease of blood sugar. It's a disease of poor signaling and inflammatory processes. But essentially, um, when you eat food, the body will metabolize those foods and you're going to produce an, a hormone called insulin. And insulin is what is the main um, mechanism that binds glucose to cells so that the glucose, the sugar in the blood that goes up when you eat food, and, you, and by the way, you can, your glucose levels will rise with the consumption of carbohydrates, sugars, but even protein for that matter. All foods basically will break down into glucose eventually. Even fats will break down into glucose to some degree eventually. But um, the insulin is what enables glucose to enter into cells, and then when the glucose gets into cells, it's very much like when you're putting gasoline in a car, the engine begins to metabolize, begins to burn, and the engines of metabolism burn up the glucose, and then you have metabolic processes, and you have all of the different things that your body needs to do. You have energy, you have normal circadian rhythm, you have DNA repair, you have all of the normal things that cells are supposed to do function when, when these processes work correctly. But when insulin um, doesn't attach to the receptor on cells, it creates a situation that's called insulin resistance, and this is where um, there's a communication breakdown, basically. They're, they're, the, the cells are not talking to hormone insulin correctly, and so the glucose doesn't get into the cell as it needs to. And so there actually there can be, a, inside of the cell, there can be a low level of glucose, but outside of the cell, there can be a very high level of glucose. And so all of this glucose that's outside of the cell that doesn't get burned up, can then go down into various, causing various inflammatory processes that are the, the, the end, the long-term consequences of type 2 diabetes. So in a nutshell, that's how it works. Okay. And so can you explain how diabetes is not simply an insulin insufficiency and why administ administering insulin alone doesn't always keep high blood sugar under control? Because uh, my father had diabetes and started with the pills, the metformin, and then worked his way up to the injections. And his diabetes spiraled out of control or was at, in the 500s at some right. point, And the insulin didn't help. Can you explain why that would be? That's an excellent question and something worthy to address. So there are two, there's actually now probably more than three different kinds of diabetes that they're now calling. There's probably four or five multiple kinds, but the main ones that are known about are insulin resistant type 2 diabetes and insulin dependent type 1. Type 1 diabetes is a condition where the pancreas doesn't produce insulin. It's a, it's a, it literally is a deficiency of insulin production, and that is in many ways an autoimmune disease. But type 2 insulin-resistant diabetes, which was the most common kind, is, ins, is better termed insulin resistance, and it's not a deficiency of insulin. It's a problem of communication. It's a problem where the body is still making insulin and producing it, but the cells aren't taking it up. There's a, again, there's a communication breakdown. So I've had many clients who 
were given insulin by their doctors, and that's seen as much as 50, 60 units of insulin, if not more, given to try to drive the glucose into the cells. And what eventually happens is the cells will continue to reject the insulin, and the person's blood sugar will continue to go up. So it's adding insult to injury by just giving insulin alone. So I've actually seen how um, a person will inject themselves with insulin, and then within the, the, the following hours, their glucose levels will actually skyrocket as a result of that because it's a communication breakdown. And unless you actually address what the problem is and how to improve the mechanisms of insulin utilization and reducing the inflammatory burden, you're, you're not only just treating symptoms, but you're making the problem worse. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it's sad. I see a, a lot of uh, people and older people in my family just doing the insulin injections and their diabetes are just getting worse. You have to do more. And can you talk about some of the pitfalls of the diabetes medications that people are being given? Well, there's all kinds of different medications that are used. And um, for example, you mentioned metformin. And, and, and actually, that is probably at least one of the less harmful of the drugs that have been on the market. There have been literally drugs in the past that have been pulled off the market because they're very deadly. But all medications typically have the, the potential for toxicity. And as well as altering and reducing the absorption of certain nutrients like vitamin B12 and folate, um, and altering the intracellular processes of metabolism. So um, what, what I would like to talk about and I would like to impart to, to the listeners is that there are, according to, and this is not things that I'm making up, but I've done my research and I've, I've done hundreds if not thousands of hours of research on just this topic alone. There are literally dozens of botanical herbal compounds as well as nutrient compounds that have been proven in the scientific literature to act on more pathways than any diabetic drugs that are equally or more effective than any of the particular medications that are used. And I have witnessed, as a clinician, I have witnessed their effects. I've watched them. I've used them. I've monitored them. And I've basically come down to the best 10 or so in terms of the clinical efficacy. We now can get to a point in practice where we can take somebody that has a blood sugar level that's so high, and within a 30-day period, we can completely Either, either completely normalize the blood sugar or bring it under control to such a degree where the, even if the person is still taking insulin for that matter, we can actually help, help the insulin work better. So um, there's all kinds of things that can be done, nutritionally speaking, that will um, work to the benefit of the person in the long term. And we can do that as, as quickly as in 30 days. That's amazing. So let's talk about some of those supplements uh, that you're talking about and how they normalize blood sugar. So I'd like to talk about a handful of them right now, and um, there's basically five that I want to really focus on, and I'm going to talk about some of their effects and why I recommend them. So first of all, it, and, and I should also say this, is that there is no single bulletproof, um, one-size-fits-all treatment for anybody. And in an ideal world, you're, you're going to work with somebody that has a, a knowledge of how to interpret blood chemistry, how to construct an individualized diet nutritional program that will include not only um, supplements but also just as importantly um, the correct diet as well as the correct lifestyle factors, the correct types, types of exercise. And if the client is on board with a full program that really is truly holistic, the supplements will work 10 times better. Yes. So, and that's the, that's the key thing with taking any supplements is that we're not 
wanting to use them as the only answer. But if we get all of these other components working together, diet, lifestyle, exercise, motivation, stress reduction, we find that the supplements have a much more powerful therapeutic effect because they're supplementing with all of the things that we're doing to support our health. Yes. That's a really key thing. But So I wanted to mention that first. So let's go into what some of these supplements are and why I recommend them, and I'll even talk about what they do. So the first is alpha-lipoic acid. Alpha-lipoic acid is a very powerful antioxidant. And in addition to functioning on various aspects of blood sugar metabolism, it has the ability to improve and increase the function of certain other antioxidants in the body. So it works to boost the body's production of glutathione, for example. And this is a very important antioxidant when it comes to type 2 diabetes and insulin resistant, one that becomes used up a lot, an antioxidant that becomes wasted. And we have to give attention to antioxidants in type 2 diabetes because there's an overwhelming amount of inflammation and in, in what's called free radical damage that's taking place. And we see this basically with every single person that has very high chronically elevated blood sugar is they're using up their body's own antioxidant systems. And so we need to replenish those antioxidant systems and to support the body's own antioxidant processes. And we can do that with alpha-lipoic acid. It's a very powerful antioxidant, but it does more than modulates various anti-inflammatory processes. It also acts, and I'm going to use this term a lot and, uh, in, this, in this dialogue with you, it acts as what's called a GLUT4 stimulant. So what is GLUT4? And that's a very important protein that every diabetic needs to know about. And so... What GLUT4 does is it's basically the communication center between the inside of your cells and what's going on in the outside of your cells. It literally will make the body take up the glucose into the cells with or without insulin resistance. So if a person is injecting themselves with insulin, they're not helping that GLUT4 protein to work any better. They're just pumping more insulin into the system. But what you really need to be focusing on is the ways to promote and stimulate this GLUT4 transporter. And alpha-lipoic acid is one of the best nutrients for doing that. So when you stimulate GLUT4, it's like you're turning on a metabolic switch. It's like you're turning on an activator switch that's basically saying to the cells, aha, let's start working again. Let's start getting this glucose and start using it. But in order to do that, we got to get it into the cell. So when you stimulate GLUT4 with alpha-lipoic acid and some of these other compounds, you're doing just that. You're telling the cell, hey, wake up. Time to start metabolizing this glucose with or without the insulin. You don't need the insulin to get the glucose into the cell. And that's the interesting thing is that you don't need insulin to get glucose into a cell. You could do it by stimulating GLUT4. So alpha-lipoic acid is key for doing that. And alpha-lipoic acid is also very versatile for other reasons. When you're dealing with complications of type 2 diabetes, and this can include um, diabetic neuropathy, so neuropathy, nephropathy, and retinopathy are the major complicating factors, nerve damage, where you, know, you start in really chronic cases where you start seeing you know, loss of limb function and terrible circulatory function. And these are basically the long-term effects of type 2 diabetes, but alpha-lipoic acid helps to improve this, what's called nerve conduction velocity. It helps to actually improve the function of the nerve um, in the long term. So it's an extraordinarily powerful and beneficial antioxidant nutrient. So that's the first one. About how much of that should someone take daily? Well, a therapeutic dosage of alpha-lipoic acid 
for somebody who's insulin resistant, I would typically use around 600 milligrams a day. And I sometimes, I would like to divide that dose up, maybe 200, 200, 200, or 300, 300 if you could do that. But typically um, taking it um, at about 600 a day is, is the therapeutic dose. You can go higher than that in some cases. There's another form of lipoic acid called R-lipoic acid, and that's probably a little bit better absorbed than the alpha lipoic acid. It's a little bit more expensive, but it's going to go. It's going to work a little bit better. You're not going to have to take as much of it, so more of it will get utilized. But alpha lipoic acid in general and R lipoic acid are two very critical B vitamin antioxidants that are used. So um, the next one is, uh, I'll talk about these two together, are berberine and bitter melon. And these are probably, if you look at the Herbal Materia Medica or the herbal catalog, and there's literally tens of thousands of plant medicines that are around the world. And I've spent hundreds of hours researching what all of these, the big ones are. And there's some really exotic plants that are used by indigenous cultures for insulin resistance. Many people have never even heard about. But when you break it down, you're looking at about the top three, four, five botanical herbs that have a remarkable, a remarkable ability to act as glut force stimulants as well as other intracellular processes of blood sugar metabolism. So berberine is a plant alkaloid that's been derived from a variety of different kinds of plants. So golden seal, Oregon grape root, philodendron bark, coptis, scutellaria. These are um, b very bitter plants that have been used historically for thousands of years. And they, con they contain this very yellow, extremely bitter alkaloid known as berberine sulfate, berberine. And berberine is like lipoic acid, but it has a very targeted effect I think even stronger than lipoic acid from my clinical experience. Studies on berberine have found that it is equally or more effective at stimulating the GLUT4 transport system than the drug metformin is. And this is a study that was done in the last four years or so, 2011, 2012. But berberine has a number of other anti-inflammatory functions. We know that it's antifungal. So a lot of times it's, it's a versatile supplement with a lot of insulin-resistant folks because um, for example, the incidence of yeast infection is very common among diabetics because they have chronically high blood sugar, and that can certainly be feeding yeast in the body, intestinal microbial over overgrowth. Berberine is a very effective antifungal for that reason, and it's often used as an antifungal to help candy kill candida albicans. Um, berberine has been shown to have very powerful cardioprotective effects, and it lowers LDL cholesterol, but it, it lowers it in a completely different way that statin drugs do it. So statin drugs inhibit, you know, a lot of diabetics are on statin drugs, Lipitor, it's just the standard regimen that you give a diabetic, and, you know, you're always going to see people on it. But berberine lowers LDL cholesterol, but in a completely different way than statins do. Does it by basically... Um, altering how the, the LDL gets recycled in the liver. And this is totally different. This is a much better and safer mechanism than inhibiting coenzyme A, which is what statins do, which is a very toxic way of lowering cholesterol. But, but additionally, um, berberine has been found to be very effective in dealing with um, ca cardiovascular complications, such as pulmonary conditions and, cr and chronic heart failure. Um, it's been shown in the literature to attenuate and reduce um, very toxic inflammatory molecules 
um, such as free fatty acids, which is what are damaging nerves, cells, and tissues. Free fatty acids are basically like um, free radicals in an explosive form. Berberine in inhibits that. So for the insulin-resistant client, berberine is extremely effective at modulating the, the GLUT4 protein that, again, wakes up the cells. Say, hey, we got to take up the glucose. But it's also reducing a lot of the other potential complications. And in terms of the dosage of berberine, therapeutically speaking, what I've seen to be effective at bringing glucose down significantly, I'm recommending somewhere between 1,000 to 1,500 milligrams daily um, over a course of 30 days. And usually when we're when including that with a regimen of supplements that target a lot of these same transport mechanisms. Um, the berberine is one of the big ones that we're using. It's one of the major botanical compounds that is going to get the job done. So um, that's uh, that's this little skinny on berberine. The next one is bitter melon, and bitter melon contains these compounds known as mamorticans. Mamorticans and bitter melon have been shown in the literature to also stimulate the same GLUT4 transport system that migrates to the cell membrane, allows the glucose to diffuse into the cell. And it does that at about 750 to 1,000 milligrams daily when you're using um, bitter melon. Bitter melon also is another very interesting molecule, um, another interesting herb. Those mamorticans contain compounds which evidently stimulate a protein known as adiponectin. All right, and so adiponectin Many, many people that get really into the, the weight loss um, research are always looking for, you know, new diet supplements that, you know, that are always kind of out there. And, and, and quite honestly, there's a lot of BS out there in my opinion. But there really is a lot of, once you actually start to look at the science and the literature, there really are some, some botanicals and nutrients that really do have a profound effect. And when you understand these mechanisms of why they work, you can really start to appreciate and then use them. And when I use them in practice, I say, wow, that really did work. But um, bitter melon is one of these that stimulates adiponectin. So adiponectin is inversely correlated with obesity. So the, the more leptin-resistant, the more insulin-resistant, the more adipose fat that a person has, which is the abdominal fat around the waistline, um, the, the lower the levels of adiponectin have been shown to be. And so when you boost adiponectin, you help to increase fat burning. And so this fat burning, literally when I say fat burning, I literally mean burning triglycerides. I literally mean burning the, 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 the fat cells are literally taking up glucose and starting to be meta more metabolically active. And that's really a key when it comes to weight loss is making the fat cells more metabolically active. And so bitter melon, I've actually found that to be an effective weight loss supplement when somebody is insulin resistant. It's not something I'm necessarily recommending unless they're insulin resistant. But I found that it really does seem to diminish a person's waistline if they're taking it regularly, 750 to 1,000 milligrams daily. And it could do that as little as a month. So obviously, we know the concern with obesity and diabetes, they tend to go hand in hand. And so I'm usually recommending berberine, bitter melon, lipoic acid together in some formulated combination. And I'm getting very good results with that in practice. The other two I wanted to talk about are, first of all, is magnesium. And magnesium is a very important, what's called macro mineral. And 
minerals are they're catalysts you know you think of your car and how your car needs to have fuel but it also has to be mechanically running correctly so you know you have to sometimes if you if your car is getting not really your miles per gallon is going down you might need to look at the wiring you might need to change the spark plugs you need to get a, what a tune up right so in the same way magnesium serves as a spark plug to how the engines of your metabolism works and a lot of minerals do that magnesium activates about 330 and 350 different uh, metabolic enzymes in the body, including the metabolic enzymes that are involved in insulin signaling inside of your cells. So once, you know, in, in order for the insulin to attach, when, when, you, when your pancreas releases insulin following a meal or when your blood sugar goes up, under normal circumstances, the insulin attaches, the glucose enters the cell, GLUT4 confuses it in and then you've got all of these other really complicated things that start going on inside of the cell and so magnesium basically helps to make all of these processes in the cell the insulin the, what are called a downstream insulin insulin utilizing effects work better and it's going to be very difficult to get things like um, inositol 3 uh, IP6 and IP3 to start working these these downstream insulin resistant these downstream insulin signaling processes to work if you're magnesium deficient and a very large percentage of the population is magnesium deficient that's been very well established it's one of those minerals that I always see repeatedly over and over and over again as being low because the diet is low in it or the soil that the food is grown in is low in magnesium and so magnesium is one of those key minerals that comes up over and over and over again that I'm always using and recommending now of course there's many different forms of magnesium magnesium has a very calming effect typically a lot of people that are diabetic and insulin resistant have a very high stress response the blood sugar is, is throwing their cortisol levels out and vice versa and, and so their, their adrenal system is really dysregulated oftentimes. And so what magnesium does is it helps to really slow the process down to bring a lot more calm and balance into the system stimulating the parasympathetic nervous system. So we like to use different forms of magnesium like magnesium threonate, magnesium glycinate. These are typically very well absorbed and they get into the brain and nervous system in a, in a, in a more productive way than other forms of magnesium do. So that's the fourth one is magnesium. The fifth one is something that many people have never even heard about before. And honestly, I didn't hear about it until the last year or so, but it's called Tudka, T-U-D-C-A. And Tudka is a very unique and, and very underappreciated supplement, but there's actually a pretty tremendous amount of scientific research about it that is pretty mind-blowing. Um, but Tudka is a taurine, which is an amino acid, taurine-based bile salt. And it's basically um, something that the body makes in very tiny quantities. So it's available supplementally and obviously in higher amounts, but there's been a, a, a considerable amount of research that's been done on Tutka with respect to neurodegenerative diseases as a possible way to normalize various types of inflammation in people that have Alzheimer's disease, ALS and Parkinson's disease, even retinal degeneration for that matter, which is fascinating that a bile salt could actually function as neuroprotective, but the scientific studies have been done on it. And the, the U.S. government has even funded um, small, small trial studies in humans for it. But uh, Tudka has also been shown to increase insulin sensitization. And that's something that's very important, is that Remember that diabetes, type 2 diabetes, is not a disease of blood sugar. It's a disease of 
signaling problems, insulin resistance, cells not using, not communicating with the insulin hormone correctly. But what Tudka does is it helps the insulin to work better, helps the insulin to attach to the receptor better. And so this is something that I've been using a lot as of late and actually been seeing some pretty considerable results with it. And I've seen that clients that have been taking injecting themselves with a lot of insulin for a long time have to use considerably less even to the point where they don't even need it anymore because the receptors are starting to work again and Tudka is a supplement that can actually help to kind of retrain the body to get those insulin receptors working again this is according to the scientific literature and my clinical experience seems to validate that as well are there any products out on the market today that contain all of these or any kind of combo product that you would recommend to control blood sugar or do you just need two large of doses of each one of these for to make one product sensible well there are some products that contain some or most of these um but the 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 not all of them. So the Tudka, for example, you do need a pretty considerable dosage to get the therapeutic action. You need at least a thousand milligrams of that daily, and that's going to be really difficult to formulate in just a single supplement. But um, the good news is that you don't necessarily need to take a ton of supplements to get your glucose levels under control. I'm a minimalist when it comes to supplementation. I try to use only the the most that is needed to get the desired effect. But sometimes that comes into really realizing that you need to use more of something and less of something else. So it really does become an art and science of balancing nutrients out. There are obviously a, a number of really good products that are on the market today and a number of companies that I think are doing a really good job. I like using the Natura brand. Um, which is an herbal slash um, nutraceutical um, compound that contains a lot of these herbs that we talked about today. And it's, clearly, there's other companies too that are very quality, like Pure Encapsulations, for example, makes some good products. But a lot of this stuff is very easy to find, very readily available. And um, it would be great. Maybe one day I'll even formulate a product that's very specifically uh, involving all of these things. Yeah, and so in your experience, what are the most important factors for diabetics to get their blood sugar levels under control? Well, first of all, what we have to address, Wendy, is motivation. And the key with what I've experienced with, with at least the majority of diabetics, obviously not everybody, is they're not motivated to change. There's something that they're doing in their life that's preventing them from actually getting healthier. They're almost stuck in this insulin resistant state mentally and psychologically and even emotionally and that's that motivational factor is is something that it really needs to be worked on on a level that isn't even necessarily physical but emotional guidance and coaching is really integral I think um, a lot of people are just lonely a lot of people don't have companionship and they just feel sorry for themselves or there's something that they've done in their lives that has been either traumatic or stressful or harmful and they they're they're in a self-destructive mode and so really needing to address that is really important the standard of care doesn't even come close to addressing these kinds kinds of concerns, but I found that by doing so, you really start to kind of root out the behavioral problems that may be associated, even causing and driving the whole disease process. But so that's the first thing is motivation. If you can find clients that are really motivated, if if somebody comes to me and they're not willing to do the program and they're just you're having to convince them, it's it's almost not worth working with them until the point where they're really ready to do it. But those that are ready to do it, those that have the motivation and the will, or I can maybe motivate them easily to do it, um, will be the ones who get huge success in a very short period of time. And once that 
once everything starts rolling, it's like you know you 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 reboot the car, you, you know you, you tune everything up, you get everything working better, and guess what? You really start doing it on a regular basis, it becomes a regular practice. So the motivational thing thing is absolutely huge. There's three other main factors that I want to discuss with regards to what 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 are the factors that we need to be working on. Second, of course, is diet. And with respect to diet, I'll say this: is that there's obviously certain foods that everybody should avoid, like junk food, processed food, you know, genetically modified foods or chemically laden pesticides, which are toxic to the body, um, fast food, things like this. Things these are things that are obviously everybody should avoid. But when it comes to the actual foods, when you really look at what are the really important dietary things that a person should be doing to get them healthier, those can be very individual. I've seen vegan and vegetarian diets be involved in resolving a person's type 2 diabetes, but I've also seen that fail miserably. I've seen that there some people really need a higher fat, almost ketogenic diet in order to regulate their blood sugar. And that actually has been shown to be effective in some cases, but not with everybody. So it, it really, the diet itself is critical, but that comes down to individual factors and considerations. The third thing is exercise, clearly, because one of the easiest ways to start burning up glucose is moving your body and exercising. And you can get on a treadmill, you can you can power walk for 20 minutes, but it doesn't take much to start stimulating the body's innate processes of glucose metabolism. Exercise is absolutely key and it's definitely part of any recommend, recommended protocol or program that I construct. Fourth, obviously supplements as we've talked about today because supplements will really work to your benefit when you get a true holistic program together. And we find that when we get these four things in place, lifestyle, motivation, diet, exercise, supplements, we really start to see dramatic changes in as little as 30 days. And as a clinician um, that not only works with clients but also trains other clinicians, we want as many clinicians to be practicing these kinds of methods regularly because we find that they can find the clients that are out there. And believe me, there's tens of millions of diabetics out there in, that, are, that are out in the world and just in the United States alone. They're out there and there's definitely something we could do right now without hesitation to start flipping this paradigm on its head very quickly. And that's the motivation that I have behind it. And one thing that I notice and my father and other people I know that are diabetic is they seem to eat a lot of sugar. And one of the reasons is when they do insulin injections, if they happen to get too much at that moment in time, their blood sugar drops too much and they want to eat sugar to bring it back up. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a crazy vicious cycle and it's an insane cycle really because sugar, dietary sugar intake is clearly one major factor for the development of insulin resistance to begin with. The over hyper stimulation of insulin production will eventually lead to the, the body just saying enough is enough, we're not taking the insulin anymore. And so, um, it's, but it's true, the insulin injections can certainly, in some instances, many instances, drive a person into a hypoglycemic state where their blood sugar is completely the opposite. And so this is just not a, a, a this is not a, a long-term solution to this problem. You have to really start looking at some of the more important factors that are really going on. We can do that. Is there an easy way for someone with diabetes to find the right diet that suits them? Because you talked about how 
well, this diet, uh, maybe vegetarian, vegan works for some people, other people ketogenic. How do you go about finding the right diet that works for you? Well, there's, it's actually very, very easy, and I've been doing this for the last decade. Is really, what is, how can we identify a person's diet easily? And, and really, a lot of the individual metabolic factors come back to um, appetite, food cravings, meal satiety. You know, a lot of diabetics will report they have no metabolism. They don't feel hungry. They don't want to eat at all. Well, these are the people that will probably do best with a pseudo-vegetarian diet. And if they follow it, they're, they're giving their body the metabolic fuel it needs. A pseudo-vegetarian diet means they're consuming lots of vegetables and plant foods. But somebody, some diabetics are quite the opposite. Some diabetics have an ex, ex, extraordinary appetite where they feel that they're constantly hungry, constantly having to eat, are never satisfied, never satiated. And these are the people that need more fat and protein in their diet. And um, this is more the correct way of eating for them. I can give I can give 50 case study examples of how half of the people were um, more the, the vegetarian type and the other were fat burning type. And, and they were all diabetic to begin with. Um, and clearly when you start implementing the right diet, you start seeing big changes. And those traits and characteristics that I mentioned, appetite, meal cravings, satiety, food cravings, these things can change over time. A person's metabolism isn't necessarily the same for their entire life. It can fluctuate because of many factors. For women, it can fluctuate because of their hormone balance and their menstruation and their menstrual cycle. And But it, for all that matter, it could change your, your metabolism can change and, and be influenced by a lot of different factors all the time. So I, I always teach clients, listen to your body. Once you kind of get the signals and understand how to interpret the signals, so when you're craving sugar, doesn't mean you need to eat more sugar, right? That's a miscommunication. Craving sugar means that you're having blood sugar dysregulation problems. It means that your blood sugar levels are fluctuating uh, too much. You're, you're probably going through hypoglycemic periods. And if you're craving sugar, it's typically because you need more fat and or protein. Yes. Yeah, and it's scary. I mean, if you're diabetic, you're really only supposed to eat 25 grams of sugar or carbs. Like it's, it's such a low amount. I mean, now everyone's different, but uh, it's an extremely low amount. Say if you eat a candy bar, that's enough sugar for two days. That's, that's your max. You're already maxed out. Can you talk a little bit about the daily limits people should have in their sugar and carbohydrate intakes? Well, clearly, um, the, the, the standard one-size-fits-all recommendation that's recommended by the American Diabetic Association is completely nonsensical and absolutely doesn't take into account the complexity of factors that each person is experiencing and that it's, it's influencing their metabolism. Um, and that's basically what you get with the standard of care. You get a one-size-fits-all cookie-cutter approach, rubber stamp, send it off, and that, that person gets the same thing. We have to treat individuals as individuals, and we have to make care, healthcare much more individualized, and that means really giving attention to all of the factors that are influencing a person's health. So um, in terms of what a person needs, uh, um, nutritionally speaking, it, it's not clearly across the board. Some people do need some kind of carbohydrates and, and plant fibers. Clearly, in my opinion, the best source of carbohydrates are from vegetables. Mm -hmm. they're, they're not going to create the same glycemic spike that um, like fruit will, for example. You know, and sometimes when you're dealing with clients that have symptoms of diabetic neuropathy, um, you need to really, really get glucose levels as optimal as you possibly can. Fructose, which you know for some people is not a problem. If you're dealing with diabetes over the long term, fructose is going to become a problem if, unless you get your blood sugar under, under control. So fruit sugar 
can actually be very harmful because it enters into a pathway that will potentially create the formation of glycated proteins, the polyol pathway, leading to the formation of advanced glycation end products. And fructose, uh, fructose and fructosamine levels can certainly cause these problems, as well as in some people that have dysregulated glucose. Again, I'm not speaking generally. I'm speaking about a very specific patient population of people with long-term diabetic problems. These people need to be really careful with sugar intake in general because it's going to absolutely cause chaos in their body. So and that's the other thing is that the, the diabetic complications are really something that can also be addressed um, hugely with, with diet supplements and nutrition. And you know, looking at things like um, alpha-lipoic acid and also benfotiamine, which is a form of vitamin B1, helps to reduce the formation of advanced glycation end products. And so, um, you know, we could talk a little bit about that too if, you, if we have time. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, because I've read that the advanced glycation end products can also almost cause sclerosis of the cells and hardening of the cells, yeah. making it harder for a glucose to get in, exacerbating the problem. Well, and so kind of one of the, the things that we're having to deal with now is the human body is not perfect. A lot of people think that everything is, the body makes is perfect. It's not. There's some flaws. But the, the, the main problem, of course, is that we're putting toxins in our body and, and we're not eating right and we're, we're bombarded with all these factors that are influencing our body. But, you know, the thing is is that the, the, the retina and the eyes, the nerves, which run everywhere, and the kidneys, none of those cells require insulin. So... You cannot be, in many ways, when a person becomes insulin resistant, they actually are somewhat protected from the potentially damaging effect of glucose. Um, muscle and fat cells can become insulin resistant. Liver cells can become insulin resistant. But the retina, nerves, nerve cells, and kidneys don't. And what we see is a problem with that, and that's why diabetics develop retinopathy, neuropathy, and nephropathy. Because you've just got if a person has high levels of blood sugar all for decades, all that blood sugar is just passing into the cell, into the kidneys, eyes, and nerves. All that glucose is just going into those cells without any insulin continuously. And what happens is that that glucose begins to glycate. It begins to stick to proteins. It sticks to white blood cells. It sticks to different lipids, and it causes what's called glycation. And this is basically a very extremely toxic situation. Glycated proteins trigger tremendous amounts of inflammatory processes in the body. And this is where you start to see um, a lot of the really toxic symptoms that are associated in the long term with diabetes. But we can go right in there and we can cut the supply of AG, of advanced glycation end product formation. We can shut down the polyol pathway first by diet, restricting, you know, getting all the junk food out, getting some supplements in there to help the body to make the, to, to burn the glucose up better so it's not floating around in the bloodstream. But then we can even intervene with things like benfotiamine and L-carnosine, which is a very powerful amino acid. And these two nutrients together, benfotiamine, L-carnosine, there's actually some others that used to be legal in the country but aren't anymore. Like there was a, an analog of vitamin B6 known as pyridoxamine, but the FDA banned it because it was being studied in a drug trial because it, it's very effective in diabetic neuropathy. So you can get it in Europe, but you can't get it in the U.S., if anybody has a black market source, let me know. <laughs> but um, they, these basically shunt the formation of um, uh, an enzyme in the polyol pathway known as aldose reductase. Aldose reductase is the enzyme that converts glucose into sorbitol, and then sorbitol then forms advanced glycation end products and creates all this toxic soup in the cells. But sorbitol is very toxic, and um, it should be avoided entirely. 
but it can be it, it, your body can actually make it when there's too much glucose going on. That enzyme aldose reductase gets stimulated, so we can shunt it with benfotiamine and L-carnosine and lipoic acid to an extent. We can drive the glucose elsewhere, preventing these symptoms and, and supporting the body's natural processes. Yeah, and one of the things that I think is important for anyone who's diabetic or pre-diabetic to keep in mind is that there are very serious complications to diabetes, and no one thinks it's going to happen to them. Right. And that's the problem is kind of like this attitude of, hey, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But it, like if people feel fine and they don't want to change their diet, but the reality is people lose their sight. They get their legs cut off. They get their, they lose toes and things like that. Can you talk about some of the complications of diabetes and why they're so problematic and what can be done about it? Some of the earliest memories I have as a child was watching my grandmother die of type 2 diabetes. And she eventually died of cardiovascular disease. Um, she lived to be 82 years old, but she wasn't healthy the whole time that I, I, I knew her. Um, and, you know, she was never taught how to eat correctly when she migrated to this country from Europe. She basically consumed the standard American fare that was being pumped on the shelves, um, white bread, corn oil, vegetable oil, um, hydrogenated oils. These things were being recommended and used even by government agencies up until very recently. Um, and clearly, um, this had a, a tremendous effect on her health. So I have a, a very personal story in those regards. And so I, I watched my grandmother die of cardiovascular disease, a disease that could have been completely prevented and a disease that could have been correctly treated had anybody at the time known what to actually do other than just injecting with en endless amounts of insulin, which clearly wasn't uh, the, uh, the, the best thing to do. But um, I'm sorry, I kind of got a little emotional there. I forgot about what we were talking about. Um, but <laughs> Diabetic it's, it's... complicated. I have, I have the same thing. My, I watched my father die of complications from diabetes because he had surgery to remove an esophageal uh, tumor. And he couldn't heal because his blood sugar was so high in the hundreds, and he he just bled out about six weeks after his surgery. Just no hopes of him being able to heal because of the high blood sugar that was not controlled by insulin injection. So I totally I feel you. It's just it's very frustrating when these diseases are totally preventable, and people need to wake up. The statistics are it's going to be you. Um, so yep. let's talk about some of the complications uh, yep. of diabetes and what, what's in the, someone's future if they don't take this seriously. Yeah, and, and exactly as, as Wendy mentioned, is just entirely real, is that eventually the body is going to just break down and you're going to become very sick, toxic. You're going to have atherosclerosis. You're going to have um, hardening of the arteries. You're going to have uh, d dysfunction to your nerves, retina, kidneys. You might need to go on dialysis as a result of uh, stage three kidney disease of just the long-term consequences of dysregulated glucose and insulin signaling aberrations. So, you know, but the, the good news is that you can completely take control of the whole thing and you deserve better. You deserve better. We all do. We all deserve to be happy and healthy, and we all deserve the care that we really deserve and need. And um, it's my mission to really empower as many clinicians as possible to say we can solve this. We can we can really get the the, the action going. Um, but what we can do is we can take things like alpha lipoic acid. We can take things even like liposomal glutathione. And in different nutrient antioxidant combinations, resveratrol, for example, things that will help to stimulate and promote the endogenous antioxidant systems of the body that start to get used up when, when, when somebody is diabetic. So you're, you're using up your, your antioxidant defenses. And it's these antioxidant defenses that are protecting us from these toxic effects 
of elevated blood sugar, free radical damage that's damaging our in, inner endothelium inside of our blood vessels. So we can get these systems back online, back regulating again, just from supplementation and some basic dietary recommendations. But we got to get the blood sugar under control because that's driving that the insulin resistance and the, and the complications associated with it is really driving the whole ship. And so, you know, a lot of times a person can have um, fibrinogen buildup, which is basically a protein that the liver makes when there's damage to a cell or an organ. Free, you know, when you have a toxicity inflammatory process that ensues, the body sends out these repair proteins that basically patch up the damage, like a Band-Aid system, for example. But even this, because there's so much of this going on, can cause a lot of blood viscosity. The blood doesn't flow through the veins correctly. The vessels don't dilate. So we can support the body in every way. We can promote nitric oxide. We can inhibit the actual mechanisms of endothelial vascular damage with things like salvia miltoriza, with things like glutathione promoters. We can do things like L-arginine and citrulline and ornithine to promote healthy nitric oxide vascular function in the endothelium. We can do all of it. We can support every single biochemical pathway, every enzyme that is being affected by all of these things. But it isn't going to take a seven-minute consultation with your doctor to get it because they're not going to know. They're not going to know. They're not going to care. They're not going to have time. You have to work with somebody that really understands this stuff and is willing to work with patients on this level of detail. And um, so it can be done. And uh, it's, important, it's important that it can be done and to know that it can be done. Yeah, and I know a lot of people are very frustrated with their physicians. I think people, they know there's something more that they need to be doing, but the doctors are practicing defensive medicine and or they just don't know anything beyond just the insulin and metformin and whatnot. And so let's talk a little bit about some toxins that can impact blood sugar control. Because I know in my own client population, my clients that have uranium toxicity, which is found in the water supply in Southern California, um, anyone with really high levels of uranium have diabetes. And um, there's other toxins as well that influence your ability to produce insulin and use insulin properly. Can you talk a little about those? Well, environmental chemicals and environmental heavy metals all act through inhibiting the function of certain proteins and enzymes in the body. And when you block certain key enzymes and proteins in the body, you start to dysregulate how those proteins and enzymes are supposed to function. So mercury, lead, aluminum, arsenic are all toxic to the body in various ways. Um, some, like cadmium, for example, is neurotoxic. It, it literally creates DNA damage. And it can actually, a lot of these chemical toxins can activate um, a, a lot of these really, um, these, these basically, uh, the inact they inactivate these DNA repair genes so that it can literally cause the expression of certain undesirable genes that are in your DNA to kind of creep up. And so really the, the issue of environmental toxicity is something that's very difficult to control because it's such a ubiquitous thing that everyone's being exposed to. It's important to know what you're being exposed to and to reduce your exposure overall and, and simply by you know being more health conscious, you're just you know putting less things on your face, on your body, and your body care that's, that would be potentially harmful for your body. And so we find that by just doing that, just eliminating toxicity and even identifying what these, some of these toxics are, we focus a lot on heavy metals, but there's certainly something to be said about glyphosate and its, and its ability to inhibit the absorption of certain minerals like magnesium and zinc and B vitamins in the gut. And this is obviously a chemical that's being used so 
commonly and frequently that most people don't even realize it. Very much how, like how DDT was being used in the 1950s and 60s where it was just being sprayed everywhere and people didn't realize that it was extremely toxic and was probably going to create paralysis in a large population of people. Yeah, yeah, glyphosate is such a huge problem. Can you explain what glyphosate is for anyone that doesn't well, know? Well, basically, I mean, I, I'm not a chemist, so I can't explain in certain detail of what glyphosate is, but it's a chemical that is used in um, a chemical uh, uh, called Roundup, and this is um, a common weed killer that is used, but it, it's it's also found, it's, it's now being seen in people's urine um, that consume certain foods, and usually foods that are not organically grown contain a considerably amount, detectable amount, of glyphosate. And, and there's studies that are coming out now that are showing that glyphosate is a very powerful toxin that inhibits a, a lot of very important liver enzymes, um, as well as reduces the actual ability to absorb nutrients in the, in the gut. And it seems to make other toxic things even more toxic, like aluminum, for example. So it's something that's really a health concern in the 21st century because it's now being used in such a high amount. Yeah, and that's why you have to eat organic as much as you can. And so let's talk about some of the most important blood markers and blood tests for mm -hmm. type 2 diabetics. So what did the doctor typically do and what should you be looking at that maybe tests that your doctor isn't doing? Well, what's great is that if you live in the United States and even in, in London, for example, I was just in London last month, you can basically order a pretty comprehensive blood test for very, very little money. And um, we use direct-to-consumer lab test companies. You can order a, a pretty comprehensive basic blood test for $35, $40, $50 in that range. And you don't really need to go to a doctor for this. You just order it online. You walk into a, a, a facility and get your blood drawn. You get results emailed to you. That's how we like to work is like that. Very simple, very easy, and comprehensive. And so in terms of the blood chemistry markers, I want to first say that most doctors aren't testing all of the markers that really could be useful in terms of from a clinical standpoint. But these are basically um, things that we're going to look at that are going to help to monitor these over time. And by doing so, you can track inflammation, you can track how well the body's using the glucose, as well as fat burning and some of the interesting things you start to see with that. So we always want to look at our, gluc our glucose levels. And that should be 12-hour fasting as a baseline. You can get even more specific and test what your blood sugar looks like before and after meals and postprandial and all that stuff. You can get on all that too. And I think that that's actually useful to see how well protocol is working for you. But establishing just the baseline glucose level, 12-hour fasting blood sugar. But additionally, we want to look at other things that are related to blood sugar metabolism, such as the hemoglobin A1C and um, fasting insulin. Fasting insulin in a, in a healthy, normal when I say normal, I mean really a healthy, ideally healthy person. Fasting insulin level should be no higher than 6. And somebody that's got a fasting insulin level that's higher than 10 is already got multiple health problems going on. Um, if they've got uh, an insulin level above 20, they're already diabetic, but somehow the lab ranges seem to think that that's even normal, um, which is completely insane in and of itself. But so we're going to look at the glucose, the hemoglobin A1C, the insulin, and also an important um, enzyme known as LDH, lactate dehydrogenase. And that's one that doesn't get tested a lot, but it's one that I pay a lot of attention to because it actually gives me an insight into how well the cells are using glucose. And so we use those for blood sugar, but then there's a whole assortment of other tests that we look at. Again, these are very inexpensive tests. Um, we look at the, bl the blood lipids, so that includes the total cholesterol, the LDL, the HDL, and especially the triglycerides. 
triglycerides are oftentimes very elevated in somebody who has insulin resistant. The reason for that is that all the unused glucose that's not getting burned up by the cells is being stored as fat and being released as triglycerides. So actually, interestingly enough, when a person starts losing weight, their triglyceride levels start going up. And they say, hey, I'm moving in the wrong direction. What's going on here? I said, no, no, no. How, did you lose weight? Oh, yeah, I lost about 15 pounds. Why are my results not – why is my triglycerides going up? Because you're mobilizing fat. You're burning it up. You're starting to move it. Oh, wow, that's amazing. So you start to see that. And, and sometimes if a triglyceride is not high and you start you know, in, implementing a protocol, you're feeling better, weight loss is coming down, blood sugar starting, glucose is coming down, triglycerides goes up, it's they're losing fat. You always want to ask about that. So we look at those. We're also going to look at some other inflammatory markers like the homocysteine and the C-reactive protein, maybe also the fibrinogen. And these are also markers of various inflammatory things. All of these things can be addressed and supported using some basic nutrition and supplementation. Yes, and so let's talk about your the course that you offer. It's called Blood Sugar and Insulin Resistance Mastery Course. Is that something that even a lay person can take and learn a lot about their own uh, ability to control their blood sugar, or is that just for practitioners? Well, it's primarily for practitioners. I created the Blood Sugar and Insulin Resistance Mastery Course out of the need and necessity to really develop a systematic and effective approach to dealing with the problem of type 2 diabetes and insulin resistance. And so we've had nearly 100 practitioners that have taken this course over the past, we've just launched it a couple of months ago. So we're, we're doing really well with that and we're really getting a lot of good feedback from practitioners that have taken and gone through it. Um, but it's primarily designed for the clinician. Lay people can take it certainly, um, but we are in the process of creating a uh, a complementary course that would be designed more for the layperson, and that would be a little bit easier to understand. We do get a lot into biochemistry and physiology and testing, and um, with with the practitioner course. But we're, we are working and planning on um, developing um, a, a kind of a layperson's version of it. Yeah, that's great. I think it's so needed because there's there's so much random information out there on the internet, and it's you're so knowledgeable. I think it's great to just get that in one place. And mm -hmm. are you still working with clients? Can someone work with you to get their blood sugar under, under control? Yep, absolutely, one hundred percent. And you can always contact through us. To contact us through our website www.metabolichealing.com. It's metabolichealing.com, and that's to learn about our consulting program. I have a team of um, two other colleagues that work um, with me um, and they're great. Uh, so we've got three clinicians and we're ready to tackle the most complicated cases that exist. Great. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining us on the summit. That was so good. And I know so many people are going to benefit from that because it's, it's sad. There's, like you said, so many people are going to be diagnosed with prediabetes and diabetes in the future. It's just going to be getting worse and worse as our diets get worse and worse. And I think what's uh, problematic is when people have a blood sugar of 125 or below or 124 and below, they're like, oh, you're prediabetic, you're fine. You know, like they don't need to worry about it. I can't tell you how many clients have come to me and their doctor's like, oh, let's just keep an eye on things. You know, the time is now. You have to not wait until you reach that tipping point and you're clinically diagnosed with diabetes. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, don't, don't treat disease, build health. That's what I say. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Michael. Thanks, Wendy, for having me. It's been great. 
Thank you again for watching this free bonus talk, which is part of the Medicinal Supplement Summit that I hosted in September 2016. You can learn more about that at medicinalsupplementsummit.com. I hope you learned a bit about the true underlying causes of diabetes and how you can approach this issue naturally without medication. Try medicinal supplements instead. This is Wendy Myers, and my hope is that you and your family experience the health that you deserve, and that all begins with taking the right supplements for you. If you like what you heard, you can purchase all of the expert talks from the 36 additional speakers on the Medicinal Supplement Summit at medicinalsupplementsummit.com. It's quite a mouthful. You can tune in to listen to talks from Mike Adams of naturalnews.com, Dr. Daniel Amen, who has 20 best-selling books, uh, Andrew Saul from doctorself.com, one of the most visited natural health websites on the internet, Katie the Wellness Mama, Dr. Peter Osborne, Jimmy Moore, Dr. Tom O'Brien, Ben Greenfield, Amy Myers, and Dr. Amy Myers, and so many amazing speakers. This online summit is dedicated to educating consumers on healthy supplementation and the latest in supplement customization testing. In this summit, you're going to learn what supplements are right for you and your health issues, how to take supplements the correct way, avoiding cheap supplements that don't absorb, avoiding supplements with harmful ingredients, the best test to customize supplements to your body's individual needs, very important, and the best forms of each supplement to take, and the best brands uh, suggested by the world's top experts. You can learn more at medicinalsupplementsummit.com. Thank you so much for listening and have a fantastic day.